Hello and welcome to this podcast from Faber. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is novelist Sarah Hall, whom I met recently in London to talk about her fourth novel, How to Paint a Dead Man. Sarah lives in Cumbria, whose landscape has had a deep influence on her writing, and she's the author of three highly acclaimed previous novels, including the book of shortlisted The Electric Michelangelo. Though her interest in place and landscape remains strong, she told me that finding the voices for the four main characters had been a key part of creating this new novel. Sarah weaves together the stories of an aged Italian artist and a young Italian girl stricken by blindness, and a successful English landscape painter and his bereaved daughter, herself a talented photographer. Art and its meanings and demands is clearly an important preoccupation running through this book. I began by asking Sarah if I was right in thinking that the work of Italian still-life painter Giorgio Morandi had been an important influence. Yes, you are right. I encountered his work first when I was an art history student and I think a friend of mine who's a painter first mentioned him to me. I loved the work. There was something very strange and serene and all the things that you, you hear people describe Mirandi's work in this way, that it, it is calm, it's tranquil, but it's sort of impenetrable in a way. You don't really understand and know immediately what the work means, if anything, and particularly with an art history degree, you're sort of trained to understand what something might mean in the still life genre. It's full of meaning and symbolism. But um, just aesthetically, I think the work is beautiful and then discovered a little bit more about the artist himself. Um, and he was a fairly strange character, was considered a, a bit of a hermit, even though he wasn't really. But the uh, narrative, Giorgio's narrative in my novel, um, is not biographical in any way of Mirandi. So while the work was definitely a starting point for me, absolutely the character differs. You know, the, the the work in a way is quite similar. Giorgio in my novel is a still-life artist who paints a series of bottles and other small domestic items, and he himself is something of an enigma, as is his work, but that's really where the similarities mm. end. Did you know that you wanted to write a novel with an Italian theme? How did that come about? Because I see, again, reading from the back of the book, that um, you spent some time in Italy, presumably researching this book. Yes, although I um, wrote a first draft of, uh, well, both uh, both the Italian narratives in the book were written before the residency in Italy, in, which was six weeks in Umbria, and that was the first time I'd been to Italy, so I had that thing of, I'd written an Italy of the imagination before experiencing the real place, and the residency, of course, gave me a great opportunity to get to grips a little bit more with the cultural history of the place and the physicality of the place and to see those great works of art firsthand that I'd studied for my art history degree. I suppose I'm particularly interested in landscape and trying to evoke place in my work, so that trip to Italy was vital. One of the characters, one of the characters in the Itali one of the na Italian narratives, becomes blind in the course of the, the the story, which must have presented you with a challenge as a writer in order to evoke sensations without using the visual, which so many of the other characters in the book um, that's their sort of main mode of of interaction with the world. Yes, the character of Annette does go blind um, during the course of the story. So while she's experienced the visual world up to the age where she goes blind, which is the age of 11, then, you know, you're, you're kind of um, having to rely on the other senses in the work to tell her story. Her story's written in the third person, which, you know, is a mechanism that does release you slightly. Uh, you're allowed to travel outside the kind of head of the character and, you know, the filter of, of, of the character. So you're able to kind of 
build the world, grow the world around her and describe it for the reader. I think were it to have been written in the first person, that would have been far more challenging. But yet interesting to sort of think about art while describing a character who can no longer see the world. You mentioned her, Annette's story being written in the third person and Susan's story is written in the second person, which is An fairly... Illegal manoeuvre. <laughs> illegal manoeuvre. And when, 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 you, when you began with it, I thought, well, I wonder if this is going to work. I wonder if she's going to manage to sustain this. And I'd, I felt very much at the end that you had, and it, it had worked really well, and it, was, and it was much more than a, you know, a clever trick. But did, did, you have to, did you have to weigh out that decision quite carefully, or did you know that Susan was going to be written in the second person? I think both. Um, the voice arrived. And the second person is actually a, a mode of writing that I feel very comfortable with for some reason although strangely it has a kind of quality of distance to it it's an imperative so you know the reader feels perhaps compelled or, 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 or sort of instructed by the writer I think I was able to reach a, a level of intimacy with particularly Susan's story written in the second person that I hadn't I hadn't ever reached before Obviously, her character is undergoing a, a kind of an identity problem. Her twin brother's just been killed and she's always defined herself in relation to him uh, and being a twin. And once he's gone, you know, she's kind of she sort of enters this spiral of not knowing who she is and not knowing how to be in the world. And the second person, I think, just allows or at least complements that idea of an identity crisis, the feeling of being removed from yourself or dislocated somehow so while the voice arrived in my head in a kind of an intuitive way in a very comfortable way and al allowed me as a writer the level of intimacy that I required to write what is essentially a fairly erotic story I mean um, it's a, quite a highly sexual story also I think the strangeness of the device really suited Susan's circumstances I felt you were taking a number of risks. You were taking a risk of the second person. You were taking a risk of the twins because twins can be, uh, you know, a great pitfall in a, in a book. I, I think, for example, especially especially when they, you know, have that degree of of intimacy that the, that these twins have. But for example, in the scene where Susan learns about Danny's death, she she wasn't aware. You know, she didn't have any sort of second you know, sixth sense uh, that something was going wrong. And I thought you'd you had sort of very you'd used it very subtly and and suggestively rather than rather than you know going all out and and making a lot of their twinship. I hope so. I hope so. And these um, relationships are very personal. I'm not a twin, but I come from a family of t of twins. You know, we have a couple of sets in my family and. And it is a very interesting relationship, and even non-identical twins. There are there is lots of anecdotal evidence that there are there's a strange bond often between siblings. So yes, early on in Susan and Danny's childhood, they are very connected, and they can kind of intuit each other. And um, although this presents problems for Susan, and she eventually receives some treatment to try and healthily separate the two of them a little bit more uh, the idea is that Danny sort of remains open to his sister so it's terribly terribly traumatic for Susan when when Danny's killed and she she has no she's not able to predict it she's unable to know it until somebody delivers this awful piece of information and yes it's um I suppose it's a strange world to enter thinking along the lines of relationships that have no scientific evidence really I mean they're uh, in talking to twins, which I, I have done, it's, it's fascinating to hear these little stories about toothaches that have been shared if one twin has a cavity and the other, the other doesn't. Um, 
But I do think it does require a kind of gentle treatment. Um, it could become very sentimentalised or heavy-handed and not really believable in the end if it's if it's too uh, carelessly handled. You mentioned that the story has an erotic sexual component to it, and one part of that is Susan's narrative. But also there is Annette's story about her about her sort of sexual awakening and you you bring off the frescoes of an Italian church the figure of the, the bestia. Mm. Can you say something about how you, how that took shape in your imagination and what, what that sort of embodies? Mm. Well, there are a couple of paintings that, um, and particularly of the deposition, the scene of the deposition, uh, which contain these terribly strange and frightening faces. And so again, kind of I'm borrowing from art history. So Annette is being... She, She's blind, she feels a presence close by, uh, she feels she's being followed around and made uncomfortable by this terrible creature, the bestia, who has kind of released himself from the painting and the altarpiece of her local church. And there is a sense of, there's a sort of uh, sinister sexual quality to this. Her family have decided to arrest her development since the blindness to try and keep her safe from the world. And so, you know, her mother, who's quite a sombre woman and bereaved, lost her husband tries to sort of lock Annette up, really, in, in, a, in a world of innocence. But Annette herself is questioning of the world and interested in the world and feels herself to be awakening. And so there is this kind of darkness, you know, this dark character, dark sexual character um, that she's curious about and also afraid of. And, uh, you know, towards the end of her story, becomes she becomes more acquainted with this <laughs> character. So I suppose it's, a, in a way, a, a symbol not only of the beast and of death, but also of a kind of the sort of dark sexual unknown for a young girl. Juxtaposed with that view of sexuality, though, is the view of sexuality as something which is restorative and constructive, and it's a, mm. it's a way of recovering the lost identity that Susan's been been searching for. And there's, there's this sort of duality, really, in the book, in the way that sexuality is presented. Yes, and Susan begins to sort of redefine herself through this very sexual relationship that she's engaging in and I suppose it's restorative in a way it's um I mean it's problematic it's it's an affair and so it constitutes um a problem in her life but she feels herself to be more human when she's you know engaging in these acts and uh, at least it's a kind of um way of feeling physically in the world and that she exists and I suppose the big questions of the novel are uh, you, sort of life and death and, and art and sex in between, uh, you know, how, how we live, how we die and how we kind of celebrate and commemorate ourselves and make find a meaning in our lives through art in between. And so Susan, who's kind of come up against death and the kind of death of her brother, sort of begin, does, she does begin to find herself again through this sexual relationship and um, life comes kind of flooding back to her in a very kind of sensual way even as she's just kind of struggling through through this period of bereavement. So I do think there's, there's sort of the sex in the novel is complicated, not romantic, and kind of goes to all the difficult areas that, that, we, that we have in our lives anyway. Many of the characters in the book are artists. Susan is a photographer. Her father, Peter, is a famous landscape painter. As we've said, Giorgio is a, a still-life artist. And that gives you an opportunity really to explore the the practice and the, the meaning and um, the, the, the whole life of, of the artist from lots and lots of different angles. Yes, yeah. In a way, there's a division in, in the novel of, of artist and 
human or, or practitioner producer of the art and I suppose it goes to this idea of examining identity again the artists in the book are not necessarily comfortable with their kind of artistic persona and we are very fascinated aren't we now with the sort of practitioners and and how they represent work their own work and that they might be the key to unlocking the mystery of the work we're fascinated by artists and writers and it to the to the point of celebrity so the novel sort of sees the artists trying to sort of reconcile themselves with the work that they've produced with the idea that the world has perhaps about their work and it's not a terribly comfortable process for any of them susan in particular her her father is peter who's the landscape artist very well known she's a fairly well-known photographer so she's i suppose feels slightly inferior to him and isn't working anyway because she's not in a very good place. I mean, Giorgio at one point says, or at least writes in his journals, that it's a, it's a house of immortal fathers in which I work. And as well as the sort of personal relationships, there is this idea perhaps of, you know, these grand male artists that form the the, uh, the kind of canon, if you like, of um, big personalities, uh, purveyors of great artistic ideas. And that there are kind of youthful women in the novel who are sort of taught by these great great old artists so there is that tension between the old male world of art and a kind of new female world of art but again it's it's all mixed in there with the personal dissolution of susan and annette's sight you know annette's still kind of painting pictures in her head she's been taught by giorgio in school and interested in the still life genre but loses her sight and the only thing she can do is kind of use the mind's eye to continue to paint her pictures. Giorgio is at the end of his life and he's got this constant stream of journalists coming up to his house asking him questions trying to make sense of it and and he's stuck to his guns throughout his career he's he's you know he's rather to to, to switch metaphors he's plowed his furrow mm. and he's got a great emphasis on being a practitioner and being skilled and mastering the art of shadows and perspective and all those things in in quite an old-fashioned way and he's, he hasn't been deflected from that but in his background there is some some contact with the fascist regime which kind of has tarnished his past can you say something about about that because i wondered i wondered if in a way you were suggesting that maybe he had sort of opted out by being a still life artist he'd kind of opted out of of true sort of political engagement through his art it was a way of not confronting some of his own demons from the past yeah i think there is an idea in Giorgio's narrative that something of his work is being produced because there is a residue of not shame exactly, but certainly there's the idea that he was perhaps involved with the fascist movement early on, which was not an uncommon thing in Italy. I mean, the movement didn't arrive fully formed, it became something else, and perhaps that there was a kind of Nazi involvement later on complicates things further. But um, Italy is a very complicated place with a very complicated political history. And yes, there is a sense, although I don't, it's never really unraveled in the novel, the meaning of his past. And he has also lost a wife who was taken away to the camps. So we're never really quite sure what of his work, what of it is responding to his past and to Italy's past. And I did want to keep that fairly opaque because it's, again, uh, this idea of interpretation of interpretation of art, really. it's it's uh, There are no black and white interpretations, you know, great art, complicated art. Uh, it, it's not singular, it's it's something that hosts many interpretations and so nobody ever quite cracks the novel, the, the, the kind of 
the novel's enigma which is why Giorgio painting these bottles over and over again why won't he just say what he's doing why won't he confirm people's theories about the work whether it is fascist existentialist whatever it is and I, I, I was interested in that I was interested in the idea that um, the work lives on past the kind of persona past the celebrity past the artist and uh, Mirandi's work too you know it's strange work that nobody fully understands it's but I love the idea that we're still talking about it now and actually we're still talking about his work mm. rather than him oh. we're not talking he, he didn't cut off an ear he doesn't have the kind of great personality great intrigue in his life the intrigue lies in his work and for me that's a that's um speaking of Mirandi again now for me that's a triumph somehow the idea that we we're talking about his work rather than him today and Peter, Susan's father, is also an artist. He's a landscape artist in the north of England. He too has stuck to his path at a time when landscape was deeply unfashionable. An agent said, you know, we, we're just not interested in landscape artists. And yet things have come full circle. And now he's a celebrity. He's, a, he's one of the sort of grand old men of, of English art. But he too has to keep constituting his own past in such a way that it makes good copy for the journalist. He's aware when he's thinking about his past that he's got to be selective and pick out the things that actually make him the kind of artist which the world wants an artist to be, I guess. Yes, true. And luckily for Peter, he's a far more kind of flamboyant character in the novel and so is able to talk about himself and tell stories, um, invented stories usually about his past. And But is a formalist, I suppose, and has been painting landscapes his whole career and this is what he's interested in and doesn't feel limited by it and again it's interesting to me this the idea of of what's new and whether anything is new in the world of art or whether there are small reconstitutions and small inventions small kind of developments made along the way and you know things come in and out of fashion all the time so yeah one minute these artists are very obscure and the next um they're kind of shot to fame oh. At one point, Peter says it's a strange profession, you know, reflecting on his own uh, career. And it's hard not to transpose that from the world of art to the world of literature and, and, and ask you about, you know, reflecting on the practice of being a novelist and reflecting on these things um, in, in the medium of, of literature. I mean, is that something that you're, that you're conscious of when you're, when you're writing or do you try to keep that at bay and concentrate on actually the words on the page? I think there are probably similarities between writers and artists um, if you're fully self-employed and so yeah I suppose I was able to kind of lower the bucket into myself a little bit and my own experiences for that portrayal of Peter and I was keen to not necessarily just try and write about their work I wanted to kind of write about the lives of artists and how, how your life does work through your art your medium how you're kind of trying to make meaning all the time in life and work Peter particularly because he's because he becomes trapped in the wilderness and he is a landscape artist, there is a sense, probably more so in his story than the other four, that this is what you've chosen in life and, and this is what you have to contend with now and mm. he has to contend with it in a very physical way, obviously. Mm. But um, there was certainly that, it's not a metaphor exactly, but there is that idea and it's, it's quite bold in Peter's story, I think. Yeah, I mean, when you say he's trapped in the landscape, you mean that literally, you don't mean it metaphorically. I mean it literally, yes. Yes, no, he becomes trapped in a gorge, at the bottom of a gorge that he's painting, and uh, spends the next few hours trying to free himself and holding trial with himself, really, holding trial with his own life, both as an artist and as a human being. Tell me about the, the language of the novel, because I was really impressed by that, and it's got a, 
it's got a real sort of poetic density to it. And by that, I don't mean it's had sort of lyrical flights of fancy, but it's, the thing, the, the words have real, got real sort of weight to them. And even if you're describing the, the innards of a pigeon, you describe the innards of a dead pigeon as plush innards. And I, and I, I just wondered how you, how you, I mean, do you see the world, does the world sort of come to you in those terms in your imagination, or do you have to work very hard to craft those, those sort of perceptions into the prose that, that finds its way into the novel? Possibly a little bit of both. I think uh, an image, particularly the images, may arrive half formed or have a sense of something and I'll try and kind of sketch it. And then the editing stages will go back and really try and refine the image, cut those words out that are unnecessary, try and pick a more accurate word. Sometimes accurate, not necessarily in a visual way, but um, in, in an evocative way, I suppose. What <laughs> you mentioned entrails. <laughs> How, what what would be a what would be a word that would conjure up the kind of plumpness and the redness and the so plush like upholstery, like red velvet or something. I don't know. I suppose I'm thinking in terms of what's really going to kind of bring it to life somehow or, or make it. It is about evocation, I suppose. At the end of the day, it's it's an again not just visual but something that goes to all the senses. So I think there's a. I think there's a sort of spirit of language which arrives in those early drafts and one of the challenges is to keep that alive during the editing process. Giorgio's narrative arrived, his voice arrived in my head and it was clean and simple and strange and had its own sort of rhythm and uh, and that, that was an odd thing particularly as it was written after Electric Michelangelo which was wordier and more ornate. And so I sort of surprised myself by drawing down this clean, clean voice and set it all down on the page. And in the editing, I sort of broke the spirit of the voice, really. I, I, I tried to sort of straighten it out too much and or add an authority to it, thinking, OK, well, this is a 79 year old and what does it need? It needs more wisdom in the voice or something. And I was overthinking it, over intellectualising mm. it, maybe. And I think just broke the narrative and had to go back to those early drafts and recapture the sort of mellifluous speech or, or the, the you know that, that sort of had a ring to it that was like it was sort of like crystal you know like flicking crystal and it and it rang and it was quite clear and I had to go back and sort of listen listen to what was going on in the early drafts again and then treat it gently and trust that enough of the character was there and yes he was 79 and you know it was all fine but uh recapture something of that, that early freshness. We began at the end with me looking at the um, the end the end note, and maybe we could end right back at the beginning because the the um, epigraph to the book is from Gaston Bachelard, and it's things are not what they are; they are what they become. And obviously, at the beginning of the book, one doesn't know how to read that. But by the end of the book, I read that as quite a positive statement. I mean, did you mean that as quite a positive statement? I did. Yes, I did. Uh, and it, it's only half of the kind of the sentence. It's it's really about the kind of I think it's the ontology of the imagination that, he, that he's talking about or writing about. But I, I, you know, I kind of like the second part of the sentence and thought that worked very well. And it is meant in a positive way. It goes to art. It goes to kind of the human being, human development. That your life's in flux. That. There are no lasting definitions, really, and that you kind of continue to get to know yourself. And, you know, <laughs> this line of Walt Whitman's, what is it? I exist as I am, and that is enough. You know, I suppose all the characters are striving towards this sort of existential transcendence towards the end of the novel. But I'm not sure that we ever really do arrive at the sense of, OK, that is enough. I exist as I am, really. It's an ongoing thing. There was something about, the you know, that phrase that things are not what they are, they're what they become. It's so true. It's so true to life. It's so true to, to art that it seemed perfect.